think we're there. We go. Good morning, church. We're kind of working with a needle and thread here this morning. I appreciate y'all's patience. If you weren't here for announcements, Carl is at the Garage Church in Fresno, helping them celebrate what's coming up on their year anniversary. If you remember Patience and uh, Jeff Copeland, John Drotos, all those guys, we helped them launch their own church in Fresno. They're down in sort of the Cedar and Ashland area, doing some great ministry. Y'all should be very proud of yourselves for helping get that church off the ground. If you've been around Flipside any amount of time, you know that we have a very um, enthusiastic heart for church planners and the world of church planning, and they're a great testament to our diligence in, in supporting that. But in the meantime, here on Palm Sunday, we get to share some time together. I'm really stoked to be uh, sharing a message with you guys. It's been a long time. I can't remember. I was talking to my wife, Jennifer, last night, and I'm like, how long has it been since I've gotten to share a message on a Sunday? It's like, I don't even remember. So it's going to be fun. I'm hoping you're going to be encouraged Um, somewhat clarified by our time we spend here this morning. I'm hoping that God's word will do exactly what it says and not return to him void. So um, if you've ever run across anything that's that's, uh, uh, worth any substance, anything profound, especially the word of God, hopefully you've asked yourselves the question, why? Why would somebody take the time? Why would somebody put forth the effort Why would somebody go to the great lengths they've gone to to not only write the Bible, but make sure that it persevered all these years? John, in writing this gospel with his name, says, I'm glad you asked. I'm glad you asked that question. Almost preemptively or proactively, he goes and he answers that question of why. If anybody was to ever say, John, why in the world would you want to take the time and the effort to write these things down, John says, let me answer that question. There's actually 21 chapters in the book of John, but the 21st chapter is sort of a PS, sort of when you write a letter, it's a, oh, and by the way. And, but John really kind of wraps things up in the 20th chapter. And he says, hey, just in case you've ever asked the question or you'll be asking the question, let me answer that before you ask it. He says, the reason I'm writing all these things is so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. John says, this is the reason why, so that you may believe. Well, who's the you? It's me. It's you. It's our great-great-great-great-grandfather. It's our great-great-great-great-grandchildren that haven't even been born yet, unless Jesus comes back before that. John says, that's why I'm taking the time. That's why I'm putting forth the effort. That's why I'm spending the energy is so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah. And not only that, but that by believing, you may have life in his name. John says, that's why I'm writing these things down. And so we've taken that idea, that statement from John, and we've said, and we've wrapped this whole series around unpacking that and how this applies to our lives. So a recap of last week. If you were here last week, things got a little squirrely last week in the ministry of Jesus. Things got a little sort of, there was, some, there was some tough stuff, some tough ministry going on. Because the first few chapters of John are these, are these miracles. These signs and wonders are these miracles. The first one we have was the, the wedding at Cana where he turned the water into wine. And then we have the healing of the paralytic at the pool of Bethesda. That was kind of a big deal because of when, he, when Jesus performed that miracle. 
Um, there was the one of um, the feeding of the 5,000. Remember that one? Talked a lot about that. There was also the one that was sort of a, a little more intimate setting, which was uh, Jesus walking on water. And Peter actually got out, and for a, got out of the boat and for a short amount of time, he actually walked on water as well. And so up until chapter six, there's just been sort of, you know, Jesus is getting the, getting the ministry into the air, getting, getting the plane off the ground into the air. And then there's these miracle, miracle, miracle. And then chapter six hits, last week hits. And Jesus is like, we're going to take a break from the miracles. And I'm going to talk to you about something a little more, a little deeper than that, a little deeper than signs and wonders and miracles. And he actually tells them, you know, they, they, he, he gets over to the other side of the lake after walking on the water. And the crowd kind of has a hunch. They're like, I know that one boat left. Thank you, Heather. I know that one boat left and Jesus wasn't on it. Now you all get back or now we are over here and Jesus is here. So how did he get here? So they kind of have a hunch. And Jesus says, you're looking for me because you got a free lunch. You're looking for me because you got fed. And you want to get fed again because it's fun to get fed. There's a free lunch involved. That's why you're looking for me. And he kind of calls them into a little bit deeper understanding and a little bit deeper relationship. And he talks about himself being the bread of life. And then he really throws a haymaker and he says, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part in me. You have no part in eternal life. And a lot of the people are like, I don't know what just happened here. I showed up for a free slice of pizza and this, I'm out. And so they, the Bible tells us a lot of his followers, not the 12, but a lot of his disciples that were following him said, I'm done with this. This is a really, really hard teaching. And Jesus kind of turns to the 12 and he asks them, where's your heart? You want to you split too? And so chapter seven is where we pick up, kind of riding on the heels of that story, that little bit of a, of a difficult teaching that Jesus unpacked for us last week. We start out in chapter seven. So if you brought your Bible with you, have it on your phone, however you choose to read the Word of God, go ahead and pull that out. We're going to be right at the beginning of chapter 7. Verse 1 says this, after this, after what? After all the stuff we just talked about, Jesus went around in Galilee. He did not want to go about in Judea because the Jewish leaders were there looking for a way to kill him. But when the Jewish festival of tabernacles was near, that's an important thing. Keep, keep, you know, put put a little watch point on that. We're going to come back to this whole idea of the Jewish festival of tabernacles. When that was near, Jesus' brother said to him, leave Galilee and go to Judea so that your disciples there may see the works you do. No one who wants to become a public figure acts in secret. Since you are doing these things, show yourself to the world, for even his own brothers did not believe him. So Jesus is in Galilee. There's some amount of time, some some people say months that have passed since the end of chapter seven or since the end of chapter six, the beginning of chapter seven. He's hanging out in Galilee because it's a comparatively safe place to where the Jewish leaders were in Judea who were now trying to kill him. The reason they were trying to kill him is because they took real issue with one particular miracle. It was the healing of of the man at the pool of Bethesda and it was because it happened on the Sabbath. And they said, he's doing work on the Sabbath. We're all about the law. At least that's what we want others to think. And we don't like the fact that he did it on the Sabbath. Plus, we just, have, we just take issue with him. We just, Jesus rubs us the wrong way. And so we're going to look for a way to, uh, for him to um, meet an untimely demise, let's say. And so Jesus is just hanging out in Galilee, and this Feast of the Tabernacles is near, and his brothers say, hey, miracle worker, 
high profile, you want to have be a high profile famous guy, go to Judea. That's where all the cameras are. That's where all the publicity is. You need to go there if you want to have this big shot public ministry and be famous. And Jesus says, boy, are you guys missing the mark. They say it sort of out of sarcasm and insincerity. But we're going to get back to the fact that those closest to him we're seeing are, are a little bit bitter towards Jesus. It's going to, it's going to really kind of come full circle. A lot of, I love how Scripture kind of self-references. If you ever, just as a little side note, if you're studying Scripture and you have a question about Scripture, use Scripture to, to answer your questions about Scripture, because, and you'll find out that there's the linkage between Scripture and itself is unbelievable. So we're going to come back to that idea of his own family um, kind of taking issue with his message that he brings. <clears throat> But Jesus answers them at this point, and he says, my time is not yet here. For you, any time will do. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify that its works are evil. You go up to the festival. I'm not going because my time has not yet fully come. After he had said this, he stayed in Galilee. Jesus tells them and really reminds them of the fact that his life is completely and totally arranged on the timetable of God. He works on God's timetable. Nothing is unintentional. Everything is structured. And he tells them, my time has not yet come. And then he sort of unpacks where they're coming from. He says, for you guys, any time is good. You guys just shoot from the hip. Anytime you guys have a thought, you act on it. If it works out, whatever works out means, you're good with it. And that's the timetable you run on. And then he even goes a little bit further and he says, and because you run on that timetable, the world has no issue with you. You're free to roam about. But he reminds them, for me, I run on God's timetable. And I've also pointed out that the works of the world are evil. And because of that, the world hates me. Verse 10. However, after his brothers had left for the festival, he went also, not publicly, but in secret. Now at the festival, the Jewish leaders were watching for Jesus and asking, where is he? But no one, sorry, among the crowds, there were widespread whispering about him. Some said, he is a good man. Others replied, no, he deceives the people, but no one would say anything publicly about him for fear of of the leaders. So Jesus does like a good Jewish man would at that point. He goes up to the festival, but he's in secret. He's by himself. And we're told that already the people in general, the crowds, the sort of the succotash of, of humanity there is sort of, there's a buzz going on. There's talk, there's murmuring, there's whispering about Jesus. And there's all these different opinions and really, Jesus hasn't even started speaking yet. Whenever I, I don't know if you guys do this, but whenever I read scripture, I, like, I have these mental images. I picture Jesus in sort of like a hoodie with dark sunglasses on. You know, he's kind of walking through the crowd, just kind of, oh, what's, what's going on over there? What's going on over here? And he's just sort of listening. He's sort of getting a vibe of what's going on. And we're told that there's all, already, he hasn't, even, he hasn't even shown himself, really, let alone speak. There's all these different opinions and questions going on, different perspectives, really. Verse 14, not until halfway through the festival did Jesus go up to the temple courts and begin to teach. The Jews, were the Jews there were amazed and asked, how did this man get such learning without having been taught? Jesus answered, my teaching is not my own. 
It comes from the one who sent me. Anyone who chooses to do the will of God will find out whether my teaching comes from God or whether I speak on my own. Whoever speaks on their own does so to gain personal glory, but he who seeks the glory of the one who sent him is a man of truth. There is nothing false about him. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet not one of you keeps the law. Why are you trying to kill me? You are demon-possessed, the crowd answered. Who is trying to kill you? Jesus said to them, I did one miracle and you are all amazed. Yet because Moses gave you circumcision, though actually it, was not, it did not come from Moses, but from the patriarchs, you circumcise a boy on the Sabbath. Now, if a boy can be circumcised on the Sabbath so that the law of Moses may not be broken, why are you angry with me for healing a man's whole body on the Sabbath? Stop judging by mere appearances, but instead judge correctly. So about halfway through the festival, Jesus actually breaks his silence and he starts to teach. And the Jews right away start to have more questions. They've gone, they've gone to less confused and less questioning to more confused and more questioning. And they automatically go, where did he get that learning? Because I know where I went to school and I know where they went to school and I know where he went to school and none of us recognize him from class but he seems to know a little bit what he's talking about. Seems to know about what he's talking about. <clears throat> so, Jesus says, come on, I invite you to consider and research the things I'm saying. Consider this. If you choose to do God's will, you will find that what I teach and say comes straight from God. It's for God's glory. It's not for his own. Then he makes the accusation that even though they take pride in the law, they aren't keeping it by plotting to kill him. And then the crowd gets involved again. And there are, there are those people in the crowd who say, what are you talking about? Who's trying to kill you? You guys have actually been in situations like this where you're in a crowd and something gets said and you're like, whoa, whoa, did I miss something? And then you look around and you're like, okay, I think I missed something. And then you've got a friend next to you, and if they really care about you, you go, hey, did I miss something? Yeah, shut up, did you miss something? <laughs> they look around, they're like, who's trying to kill you? Oh, that guy looks really upset, and so do they over there. So the crowd is involved now. <clears throat> and everybody's wondering what he's talking about. Some know, some don't. And he continues the reference to the law, to the tradition, really, of circumcision. We could do a whole message on that. But he says they break the law by circumcising on the Sabbath, but they're trying to kill him because he healed the whole body on the Sabbath. And Jesus is pointing out their hypocrisy, and of course, they don't want to hear it. We're going to get back to that in a minute. Verse 32. <clears throat> At that point, some of the people of Jerusalem began to ask, isn't this the man they're trying to kill? Here he is speaking publicly. They are not saying a word to him. Have the authorities really concluded that he is the Messiah? But we know where this man is from. When the Messiah comes, no one will know where he's from. Interesting. Then Jesus, still teaching in the temple courts, cried out, Yes, you know me, and you know where I'm from. I am not here on my own authority, but he who sent me is true. You do not know him, but I know him because I am from him, and he sent me. At this, they tried to seize him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Still many in the crowd believed in him. They said, when the Messiah comes, will he perform more signs 
than this man. So again, the common people, the people of Jerusalem, now get re-involved in it, and there's even more confusion. They start asking all sorts of questions. I heard this. I heard that. She told me this. They told me that. There's all sorts of feelings. There's all sorts of the influencers of the day have really taken effect here. There's all sorts of conjecture. Many people are speculating as to his history, as to his family, as to you know, geographical location of where he came from. So during all this, there's also people putting their faith in him. There's also people who were at the miracles. There's also people who God has been working on in a different way, and they're putting their faith in him. So the crowd is really this mixed bag. And then he kind of levels in and he goes deeper, just like he did in chapter six. He says, you know where I am from, as far as my parents and you know, geographical location, but you truly don't know my purpose and why I'm here. And in these words, he again started to allude back to the fact that he's claiming equality with God. And so again, this throws the Jewish leaders into fits. Verse 32, the Pharisees heard the crowd whispering such things about him. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees sent temple guards to arrest him. Jesus said, I am with you for only a short time. And then I am going to the one who sent me. You will look for me, but you will not find me. And where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, where does this man intend to go that we cannot find him? Will he go to where our people live scattered among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What did he mean when he said, you will look for me, but you will not find me, and where I am, you cannot come? So the Pharisees and the chief priests, they decide to send temple guards to arrest him. They're not going to do it themselves. They decide to send in their, their lackeys, their heavies. But Jesus speaks to them and the crowd again, saying he's only going to be with them a short time. And then they start to question this. What does that mean? Is he going on a missionary journey? And then the Jewish leaders and the, question, the, the, Jewish leaders and the people start to question each other. They start to have these little sidebars and these debates with each other. Verses 37 through 39. On the last and greatest day of the festival, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. By this, he meant the spirit whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Up to that point, the spirit had not yet been given since Jesus had not yet been glorified. So much like the whole eat my flesh, drink my blood statement, he kind of throws the crowd into, into a little bit of a, a fit. And he starts talking about rivers of living water. Well, back to this feast of the, of the tabernacles, the Jewish feast of the tabernacles. About seven, day, seven or eight days long, and what would happen on every one of these days is the priests would march down, big fanfare, trumpets and cymbals and music and going, and they'd march down to the Pool of Siloam and they'd get this water out. And then they'd march it all the way back to the temple and there's this big ceremonial ritual where they'd pour it out on the altar. And so every day, the people are seeing this whole water ritual. So Jesus calls that out and says, let anyone who's thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. And then John, John does this a lot. 
He gives this little sidebar in, in film. It's called Breaking the Fourth Wall. If you've ever seen two characters talk, and they're talking, and they're talking, and then one of them will turn to the camera and go, what he really thinks is that I'm going to go do that, and I'm not going to go do that. John does this all the time. He breaks the fourth wall, and he talks to us. By this, he meant the Spirit. We'll come later. Spirit, those who believed in him were later to receive. Up to that time, the Spirit had not, been given, not yet been given since Jesus had not yet been glorified. But he makes this whole statement about rivers of living water, and the people are really confused. That's when the discussions, that's when the, the sort of speculation and conjecture really gets thrown into high gear. Verses 40 through 44. On hearing his words, some of the people said, surely this man is a prophet. Others said, he is the Messiah. Still others said, how can the Messiah come from Galilee? Does not scripture say that the Messiah will come from David's descendants and from Bethlehem, the town where David lived? Thus, the people were divided because of Jesus. Some wanted to seize him, but no one laid a hand on him. We're told there's some who've made up their mind. They're like, I'm convinced. There's others who are in the process of making up their mind. There's others who is just like, what did I wander into? I need out of here and fast. There's all the 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 the. the state of life of the people and their perception and their, their um, calculations about Jesus are all over the map. Verse 43 is where I want us to spend the rest of our time this morning. It says, thus the people were what? Thus the people were divided because of who? Jesus. It's still the same today. The people. Who's the people? Everybody. People are divided because of Jesus, and there's difficulty in that. There's especially difficulty in that because a lot of us have been sold a bill of goods that said Jesus should come and make everything nice. Everything's going to be easy once I let Jesus, once I, once I commit to following Jesus. Didn't Jesus come so that we could stand around and hold hands and sing songs of praise and never have any friction with anybody, especially not my boss? Especially not my coworkers, especially not my family. I mean, I never have friction with them, right? Now, that, I mean, if I commit to Jesus, that's going to all go away, right? One of the many, many things I love about Jesus is his just absolute brazen honesty, just laying it out and telling, telling things how they are. If you're in John, put your, keep your finger there in John chapter 7 and turn to Luke. The Gospel of Luke. If you've never done to see how the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, these stories, John gets a look. Somebody once said, reading John's like, you know, going into the mind of somebody who's on an acid trip. John gets really ethereal sometimes. But all these stories kind of, there's, there's correlation and they corroborate with it, uh, each other. All these stories have, uh, they, they confirm each other. So go to Luke chapter 12. Verses 51 through 53, we get the truth from Jesus. He says, do you think I came to bring what? Do you think I came to bring peace on earth? No matter what the song may say. No, I tell you, but division. From now on, there will be five in one family divided against each other. Three against two, two against three. They will be divided, father against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother-in-law against daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. Boy, that pretty much 
sums it all up, doesn't it? One of the things Jesus did a lot is he set the bar so high, it left no room for speculation about things underneath. It, it was like, let me talk about the family, that most intimate of relationships, and talk about how there's going to be division there. In, doing, in using that as an example, he really establishes, so you can bet there's going to be friction at work. You can bet there's going to be friction on the ball field. You can bet there's going to be friction at, in, at school. Also in Matthew, there's another. He, Matthew uses a little bit different word. He says, do not suppose I have come to bring peace to the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but what? A sword. What does a sword do? Divides suddenly, sometimes traumatically. I've not come to bring peace. I've come to bring a sword. I've come to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies will be the members of his own household. Oh, boy. <clears throat> Jesus says, my purpose, my mission is going to cause division. It's very easy to think there's just some sort of like insidious plot to, you know, to, to bring division. Like Jesus is like, oh, wait till I got, wait till you see what I got stored up. This is more, I used to talk to junior high students a lot about, somebody once said, don't talk to them about trust, faith, hope. You can't, there's not a gallon of faith or a, or a you know, a, a, a liter of hope. You've got you've to talk about things they know. What I used to talk to them about was gravity, even though, the, even though you can sort of, you know, there's a force uh, acceleration due to gravity. They understood this. I said, it's kind of like gravity. God set up gravity and you can use it for your benefit or you can use it to your detriment. Jesus is saying, the message I bring is going to cause division. It's not like I'm going, uh, it just is how things are. It's going to cause division. Why? Why does it cause such division? A lot of us are sitting there going, yeah, why, why is that? Why does is, why is the message of the cross, why does the message of Jesus, I mean, my goodness, I know some people who get heated over that. May I propose to you that the message Jesus brings forces us to come to grips with our own sin and our own need for a savior. That's why it's so divisive. We can, become, we can be very unified on things like um, Hawaiian pizza, which I came to realize a few years ago is delicious. I used to think whoever put fruit on pizza is an idiot. And then I had some, I'm like, wow, that's really good. But we can be really unified on things like Hawaiian pizza. We can be really unified on things like um, Raiders fans. Not only that, but we can be real tolerant of people who don't like those things, right? Well, they're a Cincinnati Bengals fan, but I love them anyway. Or I don't know how she looks. To, you know, we get half and half. Pineapple on this side, but only pepperoni on that side. We'll overlook that stuff. But when it comes to stuff like sin and need of a savior... And eternal salvation, I believe the phrase is, that's the, those are the hills I'm willing to die on. That's why it can be so divisive. That's why it can come into even families and go, wow, we are really divided on this. A lot of people, when they hear this idea of division, we automatically think about relationships. That's the one Jesus used, right? That's, that's the example Jesus used. He used the example of the family. 
But one of the things that happens before we can even get there and in a healthy way address that is the message of the cross brings an inner division. It brings a division that happens on the individual level. Here at Flipside, we talk a lot about the three um, stages of, of, of faith. The first stage is the questioning stage. It's, you know, somebody asked you to come to church. You, you came on a Sunday and you heard what was said and you, get like, you got a lot of questions. And maybe, you know, having drinks or over the campfire, a topic of faith gets brought up and you're like, yeah, I've been wondering about that. What in the world did that mean? You got questions. And then you move from questioning, ideally, you move from questioning to curiosity. You know, it's like, why is this keeping me up? And you start to research it. You start to kind of go out on your own. You're not waiting for a campfire. You're not waiting for something to get brought up. You're going out and you're researching it on your own. And then the last stage, ideally, is this idea of commitment. Become a committed follower of Jesus. Whether you've committed your life to Christ or not, well, no matter what stage you're at, there's always this struggle with what's called the old sin nature. It's the old sin nature. It's that thing that Bible calls it the flesh that comes back and you struggle with it. And that's where this source of inner division comes from. People are on different stages of their journey, of their faith journey, and it causes or it should anyway, cause this struggle at an individual level, level or at an inner level. Take finances, for instance. Individually, we can feel divided when we consider what God lays out and the obedience of tithing. That can cause some really traumatic inner division. I remember when we first started tithing, I knew <clears throat> without a doubt God was calling me God was calling me to, to be obedient in that way. And I was already married. The Stemples, when we do things, we do things at the worst possible time. We wait for the worst possible time to do something. So when this idea, when God started working on my heart with this idea of tithing, I had just gone into, I had just started my own business and my wife had just gotten pink slipped from the, first, the end of her first year teaching. And so I thought, how in the world am I gonna bring this up? I can't even convince myself on this and I'm gonna bring it up to her. There was this inner division that said, it's my money. At that point, there was this inner division that said, there's no way. We cannot afford to be obedient in this way. And there was this really, I mean, you want to talk about division to, to the point where it's the first thing you think about when you wake up and the last thing you think about before you go to bed. What about forgiveness? What about how the world says if they wrong me or they wrong my family or they wrong my close friends, I should and could and just write them off. That can cause an inner division, especially when we consider that the person that needs forgiveness doesn't even know they messed up or they're glad they did and they don't care and they're not gonna ask for it. And the Bible calls us to still forgive. Inner division. What about our marital relationships? Guys, the fact that God calls us to love our wives and lay down our lives the way Christ laid down his life for the church. Wow. Or ladies can cause an inner division when we consider that God calls wives to be submissive to their husbands and encourage that guy to lead even when you know he's going to blow it. Even when you know he's going to mess it up. 
division on the inside at an individual level. Then this moves to the outer division that can happen. If you're single and you're trying to follow God, you cannot just date anyone who slides into your DMs. It doesn't work that way. This can cause division, especially if they're hot. There's things that happen at work. There's invitations to things that involve relationships that maybe with people that we've been friends with or acquaint, mildly acquainted with or more than mildly acquainted with for quite some time. And there's that tug. There's like, oh boy, I'm, I've got, I feel like I'm either going to end up in jail or a ditch if I go there. There's that division. We see it in today's passage. The people were all over the place. The people were divided because of the message of Jesus, and it's the same way today. So the question for us today as we start to wrap up, how do we handle that division? How do we constructively and in a healthy way address, <clears throat> excuse me, address that division? I think the first way is this, or the first step in the process is this. Recognize that it's to be expected recognize, say to ourselves, okay, I knew this was a potential thing. I knew this could have been coming. When we talk about spiritual warfare, one of the things we talk about is recognize that there's an attack coming. That's like the first healthy way to process that is to understand, okay, I knew this was coming. When we feel that division, when we feel that old sin nature, to say, I expect and then ideally, we move to step two. Be resolute in the belief that God loves you and is good. What in the world does that mean? Be resolute in the belief that God loves me and he's good. <clears throat> this simply means setting up a framework by which we run all of these divisive issues through. I imagine this big machine with one of those chutes, you know, and it's a framework that we build our lives around, a scaffolding, really. If you've ever seen a building being built, there's a scaffolding around it. And we set up this framework that's based on the Bible, and we run every divisive issue through that. If you weren't here on the week, I just had this, this thought. If you weren't here on the week when we talked about um, Bible reading plans, there was the uh, basic, the intermediate, and the advanced, I think. Those are available at the Start Here booth. If you're like, I don't know where to start. Get one of those, be reading your Bible because this idea of setting up a framework so that we can be resolute in the belief that God loves us and is good, that's crucial for that. Because here's what happens. These divisive issues at game time is no time to be sorting these out. That's bad. <clears throat> I used to tell, I used to do juvenile hall ministry and I tell kids, it was so funny. I would talk with them and they're like, you know, when I turn 18, when I turn 18, I'm never coming back to this place. I'm just like, are you kidding me? The only thing that's going to change when you turn 18 is you're going to go to big people jail now. <laughs> that's the only thing that's going to be different. If you think you're going to be mysteriously endowed with the, op with, with the, with the, with the uh, ability to quit smoking, quit drinking, and quit stealing when you turn 18, that's not going to happen. Start now. Because 18 is coming real fast for a lot of them. So start now. 
in building this framework that we run all of these divisive issues through because at game time, it's way too hard to go, I don't know what I should do. I don't know. As I was preparing for today, God brought to my mind this idea. Hold on, Jeff. I thought Jesus was the Prince of Peace. That's one of his names, right? Jesus did come to bring peace. He just did, didn't come to bring it to the earth. We get the, we get the answer to that type of peace or exactly what that peace is in Paul's letter to the Romans. It says, therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with who? Oh, that is good news. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus says, I've come to bring peace, but it's come, I have not come to bring peace to the earth. The earth is corrupt. It's going away. Its days are numbered. Why would I come to bring peace to that? I came, bring, I came to bring peace between you and your heavenly Father. Because of that peace, we can handle the division that, become, that comes because of Jesus' message. Amen? Amen? As we wrap up today, my prayer for us is that we're able to recognize these things when they come into our lives, recognize these divisive issues when they come into our lives, <clears throat> and correctly handle them with Scripture. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for today. We thank you for the opportunity to come here to talk about your word, to be encouraged by you, to be built up. We pray that as we go out into the places you've called us to be, you will continue to do what you said, your, have your word do what you said it would do, which is not return to you void. Give us minds that are about you. Give us thoughts that are about you. Help our actions to show the fact that you came to bring peace between us God. And in all that, Jesus, we ask these things in your name. Amen.